If you have a Bible, open it up. We say this almost every week, but it helps when you can see that this is the authority, that I'm not the authority, that God's word is, it's true, and it's worth living our whole lives in light of. So Ezra 5, we're going to spend most of our time in the first five verses that Lammy just read. I'll explain what's happening in the whole chapter, but before we do, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be back in this auditorium. But we want our thanks to be in the right priority. Jesus, when your disciples returned amazed that they had authority over demons and that they could heal diseases, you told them, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so I pray, Lord, we would have those same priorities in our thanksgiving and say, oh, Lord, we are so glad to be back here, but the greatest gift is to know you and to have our names written in heaven. Help us to feel in our souls that that is the treasure. You are the treasure, and knowing you is worth everything. So help us now as... We look at your word. Would you help the eyes of our hearts to see and to love what we see and to be changed? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week, Ezra chapter four ended with the Jews stopping the work on the temple. So Ezra chapter four, there really wasn't resolution to it. They're being oppressed. Their enemies are going after them the whole time. And the chapter ends with the Jews stopping the work. So that's how chapter four ended Fifteen years go by from the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5. That's a really long time. Fifteen years and there's no building happening. Chapter 5 starts, what Lammy just read, it begins with telling us that Haggai and Zechariah, their prophets, they prophesy to the people and tell them to restart building the temple and to finish it. The Persian officials, so those big names that were in the, in the text, those are the Persian officials. They're watching what's going on, and they don't like it. They don't like that the Jews have started rebuilding the temple, and they ask, who's giving you permission to do this? Who gave you a decree that you were allowed to start building? It's verses 1 through 5. And so they write a letter to Darius, the new king of Persia, to look into it. Most of this chapter is a record of the letter that they send to Darius. So verses 6 through 17 is the letter that the Persian officials are sending to say, hey, what's going on? These, these Jews are rebuilding the temple. Did you give them permission? They say that Cyrus, the previous king, gave them permission, and we don't think it's true. Chapter 5 also ends without any resolution, just like chapter 4 ended without resolution, chapter 5 ends without any resolution. We won't find out what happens until the next chapter. But what we will see today is that despite the disapproving gaze, eyesight, the disappro disapproving gaze of the Persian officials, the Jews obey by living under the eye of God. 
That's the first section of this sermon. It's really the, ti- it's the title of the sermon is Living Under the Eye of God. But the first section is Living Under the Eye of God. We're going to see that's how the Jews obey. And then we're going to see that they're strengthened to live under the eye of God through the word of God. So that's where this sermon is going. If you're a note taker, that's for you. So let's start by looking what it means to live under the eye of God and how God's word helps us. Verses three through five. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, so he's a Persian, and Shethar Bozani, another Persian, and their associates came to the Jews and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So verses 3 and 4, the Persian officials are questioning the Jews about the temple who gave you this decree, and what are the names of your leaders? So this could be trouble. How many of you have been stopped by a policeman here who asks for your Emirates ID? Either wearing a police uniform or not. When it happens, he's not asking so he can give you a prize. He wants your Emirates ID because you're about to pay him money. This is trouble. It's trouble that they're asking for names. It's not a good feeling. The police are in Jerusalem and they're taking names. This would be really intimidating. But instead of the Jews stopping the work, verse 5 tells us, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So that phrase, do you see it? The eye of their God was on the elders. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, if God's eye is on you, it means that he's caring for you. He's blessing you. That's what it means to have God's eye on you. Here's an example. Deuteronomy 11:12. 12. Moses, he's talking about the land of Canaan, and he says this. This is a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it. So having God's eye on you means that he's caring for you. He's blessing you. Verse 5, God has his eye on the elders. That means in part that God's looking after them. He's caring for them, blessing them. The reason, this is what our text is saying, the reason the Persian officials can't make the Jews stop is because God's eye is on them. But that's not all it means to have his eye on you. In, In Ezra, in this book, every other occasion that Ezra wants to emphasize that God is helping the people, he uses a different picture. He says, the hand of the Lord was on the Jews, or the good hand of God was on me. He does that six times, six times in the letter. If God's trying to say that, or if Ezra's trying to say that God is helping the people, he says, the Lord's hand was on them. It means he's holding you, he's protecting you, he's keeping you, he's guiding you. So why, in this one instance, does our text say that God's eye was on the people? Instead of saying what it usually says, 
that his hand was on them. It's because our text is emphasizing that God is watching. The big question in this chapter is, who do the Jews care most is watching them? The Persians or God? King Darius or God? Do they care more about what King Darius thinks about them that he might look at them and not like what he sees? Or do they care most that God is watching? And so they want to please him. That's the tension of this chapter. These people's names are being written down. They're being watched. Verse 4 tells us that. Verse 10, they say the, the names are actually delivered to King Darius. That's why verse 5 says, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. The battle of this chapter is whose eye matters the most, God's eye or the Persians? Do they live to please the eyes of God or do they live to please the eyes of the Persians? If they decide to live under the eye of the Persians, they'll stop rebuilding the temple and they risk displeasing God. If they decide to live under the eye of God, they'll keep rebuilding the temple, and they'll risk displeasing the Persians. Which is more dangerous? Which is more blessed? The New Testament gives a lot of space to this issue. Really, when I was working on this sermon, the biggest problem for me is what texts to not include. Because the New Testament is always talking about having other people's eyes on you versus God's eye on you. And what do you do? There's a conflict. People are watching, or do I care most about the fact that God is watching? Who are you trying to please, God or other people? So here's an example. This is Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 5 and 6, Paul's talking to servants, servants who are Christians, and he says to them, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would obey Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. So, so what he's telling these servants is, listen, you serve your earthly master as though you're serving Jesus, which means don't just do a really good job when, he's, when your earthly master is watching you. So he's saying not by way of eye service, you do a really good job when someone's watching, but when they're not watching, you just turn on Netflix He's saying, don't do that, because if that's you, if you're changing your behavior because people are watching, then you're a people pleaser. That's what Paul says. Now, you might change your behavior because you're trying to avoid punishment from other people while they're watching. That's, that would be the temptation for the Jews. They know they're being watched, so maybe they should change their behavior so they don't get punished by the Persians. Or you might change your behavior when you're being watched because you want praise from the people who are watching. But either way, you are being most deeply motivated by what people think. 
as they watch instead of God. That's called people-pleasing, and it's a sin. If you act differently when people are watching, you just feel people's eyes on you. Or even when their eyes aren't on you, you daydream about people seeing you and what they'll see, what they'll like when they look at you, whether that's your physical appearance, your pers- how great your personality is, how talented you are, how wealthy you are, what a good leader you are, or even how spiritual you are. If that's what you enjoy thinking about or it's what motivates you, Paul says you're a people pleaser. Test yourself here. Test yourself. Look at your own heart and think, do I do this? Last week, we talked about this in connection with slander. We all, we all want to be liked. Everybody wants approval from people. We crave it. We want glory from people. All of us. Test yourself. If, if, you, if you test yourself right now and you say, oh, I don't think I worry what, what people think about me. It's kind of like asking a fish what it feels like to be wet. Fish don't know what it's like to feel wet because they don't know what it's like to not be wet. Some of us are like, oh, I'm not worried about what people think. It's because all you do is worry about what people think. You don't even notice. This is something we're born into. We crave the approval from the horizontal level rather than approval from God. The problem is this. If you are motivated most deeply to make the people who are watching like you, admire you, praise you. You cannot, at the same time, be a servant of Christ. Galatians 1.10, Paul says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So being a servant of Jesus Christ and trying to win approval from people, those two things are incompatible. You cannot be a servant of Jesus and at the same time be living for the approval of people. In our dead fallen hearts that we're all born with, all of us care what people think about us when they see us more than we care about what God thinks when he sees us. We care the most about that, and it's totally backwards. We're born that way. We believe that the praise and glory that people can give us is more satisfying than the praise and glory that God can give. We think that people have a greater control over our futures than God does. And so we really care what the people think about us because they control our future. Or we think the reward that people can give us when they're watching us is more satisfying than the reward that God can give. That's totally out of step with reality. It's just not true, but it's the way we all are born believing, and that's why we're slaves to the eyes of other people. That's how everyone is before they're saved. When Jesus saves us, when he gives us new life, he's helping us see reality as it is. That 
God's approval is much more satisfying than the approval of people. The reward God can give actually is so much greater than the reward people can give, and that God actually does control the future. And so it matters way more what he thinks than any person, including someone as powerful as King Darius. What God thinks matters, and Jesus frees us to see that when we become a Christian. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6.14, I have been crucified to this world and this world to me. What a funny thing to say. I've been crucified to this world and this world has been crucified to me. Jesus killed Paul's belief that the world and the people in it were better than God. Jesus crucified that wrong belief in Paul when he saved him. So your life before Christ was like a car that ran on petrol, which is getting really expensive. And when Jesus saved you, he changed out the entire system. So the outside of the car looks totally the same, but it doesn't run on petrol anymore. It runs on electric. So you have no need for petrol anymore. That's not how your car runs. If you try to run on petrol, it's not going to work like it used to. Your engine, everything else runs on electricity now. The car is dead to petrol, and petrol is dead to your car. We're crucified to this world and this world to us. If you're a Christian, you used to run on the praise of men. You were motivated most deeply by what people thought about you one way or another, either because you were afraid of what they could do to you or because you just wanted their praise. That's what we are most deeply motivated by. But you run on something different now if you're a Christian. God has made you to run on his approval, to be driven by his eye on you. You're his child in Christ, and his pleasure is what keeps you going, not other people. And God's call on us now, if you're a Christian, is to stop acting like you still run on petrol or even a hybrid. You're electric now. He wants us to live all of life conscious of the fact that he's watching and confident that his eye on us is all that matters. That's the way God wants you and I to live. With that kind of consciousness, he's watching. And what he thinks when he sees is all that matters. That's what he's remade you for. The Jews did that here in Ezra 5. The eye of their God was on them. And even though the Persians were watching with suspicious and unfriendly eyes, God was watching. And because they cared most about what God saw, he blessed their work. That's what verse 5 is telling us. And even in the report that the Persians send to Darius, they tell Darius, the work is prospering under these guys. Verse 8 says that. And it's because they're living under God's eye to please him. And we'll see next week when there's actually some resolution to these two chapters that God's going to bless them even more than they could have imagined. Now, let's see, we're going to see with the rest of our time that the way we resist the temptation to live for the approval of people because it's going to be a constant temptation. 
It's one thing to say Jesus has changed out what's underneath the hood of your car. So, chalas, you don't have to worry about it anymore. That's not how it works. He has changed you, and now you have to resist the temptation to live for the praise of people. And we're going to see that it's through the word of God that we're driven by God's eye on us, or we learn to be driven by God's eye on us. So, we live under the eye of God through the strength his word gives. The work stopped for 15 years. That's, that's not a, a long jump if you're just reading. Chapter 4 ends. Next second, you start chapter 5. 15 years is a really long time if you're living it. So 15 years, no work. How does it get started again? What gets it going? What made the people all of the sudden, after 15 years, start caring what God thought when he saw them instead of people? Verses 1 through 2 tell us. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So the prophets are supporting the work of rebuilding. How do prophets support construction? It's not by pushing wheelbarrows or by swinging a hammer. They support the work by prophesying. That's what the first two verses are telling us. As they spoke the word of God to the Jews, the Jews began to care more about pleasing God than about pleasing people. God's word is what convinced these people to start building and to keep building. So early in our service, during the prayer, Luke read from Haggai chapter 2. And Haggai chapter 2 that Luke read was spoken to these people. This was one of the prophecies that God used to get these people going after 15 years of not working. And in Haggai 2 that Luke read, God's saying, build the temple, my spirit's with you. I'll be with you and I will help you rebuild. I'll supply everything you need. You worry about silver and gold, where you're going to pay for all this? It's all mine. You're going to get it from the nations. And we'll see he does it next week. Now, Zechariah, the prophet, speaks similarly. If you've got a Bible or you can pull one up, it would help to see this if you can find Zechariah. It's the second to last book in your Old Testament. So Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. If you're there, you're too far. If you hit Matthew, you're too far because that's the New Testament. Second to last book, Zechariah. We're going to look at a couple things in chapters 3 and 4. So Haggai's prophesying. Zechariah, he's another prophet. He's having visions, and then he proclaims what he sees in the visions to the Jews. So in, in chapter 3 of Zechariah, he sees a vision of Joshua the high priest. Our text calls him Jeshua. They're the same person. So in the vision that Zechariah sees, in chapter 3 of Zechariah, Joshua the high priest is given a stone that has seven eyes on it. That's chapter 3, verse 9. 
he sees Joshua given a stone with seven eyes. That's strange. God's going to explain later what it means. He doesn't explain in chapter 3 what that stone with seven eyes is. Then in chapter 4, God gives Zechariah words to speak to Zerubbabel, who's the leader of the Jews. Okay, so if you're confused about who all these people are, Haggai and Zechariah are prophets. They speak God's word. And they're speaking to the Jews and the two leaders of the Jews, Zerubbabel, he's the main leader, and Joshua, the high priest. So Zechariah is given a prophecy for Zerubbabel. Chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, this is what God says. The word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. So that's a promise. This guy is going to finish it. And then Zechariah says this, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So that's saying, even though the work has been very unimpressive so far, you're going to see Zerubbabel holding the plumb line. That's the line that you hold up to make sure that the building, the finished building is straight. You're going to see that guy doing it and you're going to rejoice, even though now it looks like very little has been done. And then God explains what the seven eyes on the stone represent. At the end of verse 10, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So here's the connection between these prophecies and our text. In Ezra chapter 5, Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, and the elders begin work on the temple. In Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2, let us know the strength that they have to get started after 15 years of fear comes from the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. God's supporting the people through his word. His word is his encouragement. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you everything you need. And I'm watching. My eyes range throughout the whole earth, and I see what's happening. Zechariah 4.10 is saying, I see everything. Keep going. The Jews are strengthened to care more about what God sees in them than what the Persians see in them because they're listening to his word. If you find in yourself that you care very deeply about what other people think when they see you, but you want to live under God's eye, you want to care most deeply about his pleasure when he sees you, then you need what these Jews in Ezra 5 needed. You need God's word. And that's what God gives. Because this is such a problem for us, God's word gives plenty of help. We're only going to look at one help that he gives. It's in Matthew chapter 6, and it comes from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus, in Matthew 6, goes right to the heart of our conflict with what people see in us, with caring about what God sees in us. And he does it by comparing the reward that people can give us when they see us with the better reward 
that God can give when he sees us. So listen to this. This is Matthew 6, verse 1. Jesus Christ is speaking to us, and he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So this is Jesus' first promise to help you kill the temptation to care what people think about you. He says, if you care that people are watching you and that's why you do the things you do, you'll have no reward. And it kills, it kills that desire in us because we say, wait, that doesn't sound like a good deal. If I care what people think, no reward from God. Jesus keeps going. Chapter, I mean, verse 2 of chapter 6 in Matthew. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So if you're tempted to be generous because other people are watching and you want their praise, you want to be admired because you're a generous person, Jesus says that's all the reward you'll get. But if instead you say, no, God, I want you to see. I don't want other people to see. I want you to see. Then Jesus tells you, you will be rewarded. And that's the comparison. That's how you kill the fear of people and their eyes on you is by saying, if I care what these people think, that's all the reward I'll get. But if I care what God's, God thinks, he'll reward me. Which do you want more? Reward from the infinitely great, kind, generous, glorious God or just some praise from people? He does the same thing with prayer in verse 5. He says, if you pray so that people will see, that's all you get. But if you pray for God's eye, he will reward you. With fasting in verse 16. So if you don't eat and you make yourself look all sad and hungry so that people think you're really holy, that's all you get. But if you fast because you know God is watching, Jesus Christ says, my Father will reward you. He's telling us so that we will have power to destroy the grip of people's praise on our lives. That's why he tells us this. The pull of people's praise, the seduction of being seen is strong. And the way you kill it, and you must kill it, when you sense it in your heart, you must kill it. The way you do it is by running Jesus' words through your mind that the reward is not worth it. The reward of people's praise is just not worth it if it means I miss out on the infinitely better reward of God. That's how you kill, kill the fear of man. That's how you kill your desire to live under the eye of other people and live under the eye of God. And that's how the power of Jesus will be glorified in your life. This is in closing, but it's, it's important. Many people think 
that Jesus is most glorified in our lives by his death on the cross forgiving us of our sins. So most people think that Jesus gets the most glory out of our lives by his death on the cross forgiving us. But that's not true. He is glorified by forgiving our sins. The forgiveness he gives is complete and forever, and it's absolutely free. It's beautiful. But Jesus is most glorified in your life through the change that his death on the cross brings about in your life. He died to forgive you and then to change you. So when Jesus forgives a people-pleasing sinner, someone who just cares about what people think when they see them, when Jesus forgives a people-pleasing sinner and then by his power makes that forgiven people-pleasing sinner into a forgiven God-pleaser who lives for what God sees, he is more glorified than simply by forgiving a people-pleaser. His death on the cross bought your forgiveness and transformation. So if you want Jesus Christ to look great in your life, seek to be changed by the power of the cross. And the power of the cross becomes yours as you trust his promises. That's how the power for change that Jesus purchased on the cross attaches to your life. It's when you believe his promises, like these promises in Matthew 6. Believing his promises is what did it for these men and women in Ezra 5. It's what freed them from the fear of what people think. So as you believe that the reward of being seen by God and living under his sight is greater than any reward people can give, you will be freed. Freed from the fear of people, you will be rewarded what he promises, and Jesus will look great in your life. Let's pray.